Social Ventures Australia brings you this podcast from the SVA Quarterly, the leading management publication for the social sector in Australia. With me today is Lisa Paul. Lisa has been a secretary in the federal government for departments including education, employment and workplace relations, and more recently, education and training. Lisa is also a board member of SVA and now has a variety of interests across the social and other sectors. Hi, Susan. Great to be talking with you. Lisa, you've worked at that very high level in government, and in that time you've had national responsibility for all aspects of education, from childhood, early childhood, through to postgraduate, research, science, as well as employment and workplace relations, including advising government on all these matters. You've had an enormous job. You've managed billions of dollars in budget and thousands of employees in the service of Australia's citizens while balancing the demands of changing policies and the competing demands of politicians day to day. Can you describe a day in your life as a secretary? <laughs> it's all flooding back now. I, I've, I've not been one since February 2016, so, but I was one for 11 years. A typical day was never typical. So I, I, the way I used to put it was I'd come in expecting to do A to Z and I'd end up doing, you know, A to G and 1 to 100. You never actually knew what was going to happen on any given day. I would often be asked by my own staff, you know, how do you, how do you juggle all that? And I'd say, well, I triage it. <laughs> it's like if it's looking like it might become a car wreck or a really, some sort of really bad accident, then I'd definitely be on the scene. Um, if it's going fine and people are totally running it under their control, then I'm happy with that. You must have had a very strong team supporting you in order to manage those competing demands and how you could deal with them. Yeah, I had a great team, I had a wonderful team. And when I became a chief executive, I realised that that was the number one thing that was lonely, and that is to make that most senior staffing decision, because no one can help you, you know. A government secretary doesn't have a board, doesn't have a chairman, uh, it's really up to you. And uh, I was blessed um, with wonderful, wonderful people, all of whom were worthy successors uh, to me. So with all that busyness going on around you and a great team, how did you maintain your vision as a leader of such big, important departments? How do you deal with those conflicting demands and all those things going on, but still be very focused on what you and the department needed to achieve? Yeah, that's, a, that's an awesomely good question. <laughs> I, over time, I really reflected deliberately on what my role was and decided that my role was to be number one policy advisor to the government of the day, and I worked for five prime ministers and nine cabinet ministers in the 11 years, and many other ministers, to be number one policy advisor. So I would advise sometimes privately, sometimes with other people, sometimes with stakeholders, uh, usually the minister that I worked to, or the cabinet, um, or the prime minister, on an issue, a, a long-term policy issue, an urgent issue, could be anything. I might be advising on policy, on strategy or on tactics. So that's the upwards. Then there was the downwards and that was the chief executive role. So absolutely uh, traditional chief executive of a large corporation and I loved that role. So being a leader of people and then outwards to stakeholders. So the number one mm, representative of the department and all those roles are quite different. Uh, and then I defined my leadership. So I consider, it was based on some Australian research, 
uh, from the 1990s, actually, where a researcher had surveyed Australian workers and asked them, what do you want from your leaders? And they'd said, we want two things. We want someone who can describe the strategic direction. Where are we heading? And secondly, we want our leaders to care for us in a genuine way. And I worked on those definitions of leadership for my entire career. And I talk about that definition of leadership when I give speeches on leadership and so on. And it informed everything I did. It informed, for example, that when we considered senior executive remuneration advancement, 50% of advancement was based on actually getting the outcomes, achieving the strategic direction, but 50% of advancement was based on what were they like as a leader and what did their staff say about them? and their stakeholders. And I'm absolutely positive that that second 50% raised the bar of leadership. And just decent behaviour, decent, courteous, respectful, you know, consistent behaviour, which I think is the essence of leadership. I thought a lot about culture. So as a leader, I'm a culturalist, not a structuralist. In other words, you can work with a crummy structure if you've got a great culture, but you can't get around in front of a great structure if you've got a bad culture, a toxic culture. So that's one thing. And then lastly, what do I stand for? And through my whole secretaryship, I decided that I stood for Indigenous business being everyone's business. I started every speech in that way. Uh, we focused everything we did um, on Indigenous recruitment, retention, advancement. And at one stage, we had 6% of our people being uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians. Fantastic to hear. It sounds like you thought quite deliberately about the type of leader you wanted to be and the things you wanted to share with your people. Absolutely. I reflected more and more on it, actually, as the years went on. Um, but it was the thing that would wake me up earlier in the morning, so I was really good at switching off at night because you kind of have to look after yourself in these positions. Um, but in the morning, if there was something that I really, really needed to think about in this in this area, like... How do I define a new culture when I had to create a whole new department on a change of government? Then I would wake up earlier and earlier thinking, oh, what's it? how do I define this culture and how do I define it to the people when I go out there in this new department, just as an example. That's very really interesting and flows really nicely into the next thing I wanted to investigate with you, and that's around motivating a large team around common purpose particularly on that culture point, but also when you have those changes of government and so many organisational changes as a result. I reckon every six months we had what would be considered in private sector a merger or acquisition thing go on. <laughs> um, in government, we'd call it machinery of government change, okay? And it becomes a, you know, it becomes a verb and a noun and an adjective and people get mogged and... Uh, Anyway, this would go on almost constantly, and it can be quite wearing for people. You know, a lot of people don't like change. So my technique for dealing with it was to explain really clearly why it was happening, why the government had made this decision to add something to us or to take something away or to change our structure, or why there was a policy change. Like, And what was in it for Australians and others? Why was the government of the day choosing to do this? You've got to give context. And they're always going to be doing it for a reason. It's never random. So what was it? And so people would say, oh, yeah, OK, I get that. I understand why this change is happening. But change is always hard. So then the next thing is, how do you communicate it? And how do you let people express their anxieties about it? 
So my strong belief is that you need to give multiple channels for communication outwards to the people, downwards, but also, even better, multiple channels for communication upwards. And so the bigger the change, the more channels I would want to offer and the more communication I would want to offer. And quite frankly, you can never communicate enough. But you can help people understand the change and you can just keep talking about it. Then you've got to make decisions as quickly as possible about how it affects them. How does that actually affect them? This person at his or her workplace, you know, his, their workstation, what difference is it going to make? And how should they think about it in their daily work? I think you're right. The change can be very wearing on people. It sounds like some great advice to leaders in the sector, across the social sector as well, who are constantly faced by change. Yeah, it's true, isn't it? I think um, just think through, okay, why is this happening? And why did the decision makers make this decision? And even if I don't like it at the time kind of thing, What's the rationale? And if I can understand the rationale, then people are grown-ups, they'll understand why change is happening, and then it's a matter of making it as easy as possible for them. And I think you're touching on something that's common to both government and the social sector, and that very deep attachment to purpose that people have, either through their departmental work or in the sector, through whatever organisation yep. they choose to work with. Yep, I totally agree. And so one thing I would say when I would talk about leadership is, in describing the strategic direction as being a, one of the two planks of leadership, it's incredibly important to describe the destination. Where is my team heading? Where is our work heading? Where's my work heading? Where's the my section's work heading, my group's work heading, my bigger organisation? The department, where's the department heading? Where's the department sitting in the Australian economy? Where's the Australian economy heading in the global economy? How are we all connected? How's my work connected to our vision? But when there's change, you have to describe the destination differently for every person in your team according to their style. Some people who enjoy ambiguity will just need the destination described. Where, where is our work heading? Some people will need simply to know that, yeah, okay, there's a bridge to this destination and it's got six lanes on it. Some people will need every brick in that bridge described and you must know as a team leader what each of the people in your team need to cope with change. Focusing on your role as a secretary and leading such a big department, secretaries, it seems, have become more high profile and public. And how do you operate as a leader in that environment, not only managing all of those stakeholders that you've touched on, but suddenly having the overlay of public scrutiny as well? Yeah. I, I, never, I never chose to take profile. Uh, I would give speeches, but it would not be on government policy. It would be on leadership, women in leadership and so on, change management and so on. Sometimes I would give speeches on on government policy, but it, I chose not to be uh, in the media, in the media's eye. However, you are absolutely correct that government officials uh, and particularly politicians are under incredible scrutiny. So there's been public scrutiny for ages and ages and ages at a higher level than in other sectors through things like Senate estimates, which is televised and so on, always ends up being headlines of some sort somewhere the next day. But these days with social media, it's just 
unavoidable. It's everywhere. And I actually have the greatest admiration for politicians because they are under incredible scrutiny um, and opinion, uh, opinion setting, if you like, every minute of every day now. So now you've got the normal high level of scrutiny because governments are dealing with taxpayers' money uh, in particular, added to the normal media scrutiny, added to technological change, which allows media scrutiny to be ever faster and the media cycle to be ever shorter, added to social media. And the combination of all that means, yes, huge pressure, huge scrutiny, uh, and not always fair judgments made on, on what's actually going on. You worked in a couple of areas that everybody's an expert on, particularly yeah. education. <laughs> Everyone's been to school, so they know all about education. Um, so that public scrutiny must have been very real. But at the same time, you were having to have a real impact on a couple of the key planks that reduce disadvantage across Australia in education and employment. How much, how much capacity did you feel you had to really make a difference to those people in those sorts of areas? Well, actually, that's why you work in government. The capacity to make a difference is huge, just huge. And when we would survey our own staff, what kept them at work and motivated was always the capacity to make a difference. And I would occasionally, when I was really lucky, hear someone's story about the difference we'd made to their life. So indeed, one of my staff is my most senior Indigenous, my Indigenous leader would tell his story about how some of our education programs back in the day helped him be the first person in his entire family to go to university and the difference that's made to him and then the difference that's made to his family and the flow-on effects. I've heard stories about how breakfast programs in the Northern Territory helped get Indigenous women involved in their children's schooling by making breakfast and then got them wanting to read the recipes for that and then what got them wanting to undertake adult literacy and the huge benefits of that for their own employment, let alone their kids' schooling. The stories are fantastic and that's why politicians do it, actually, uh, and that's why government officials do it too. It's a very similar motivation, though, of course, to the not-for-profit and social impact sector, you can spend all sorts of money on things that don't make a difference to people who are disadvantaged. Um, and I love SVA because our focus is absolutely unrelenting on understanding through real evidence the ways to spend money for genuine change. Mm. You've touched on briefly there the, the system-wide impact and certainly something that SVA believes in very strongly mm. about how can we make the system better for more people. When you were working in government, you were you had a system, the education system or the employment system, etc., but you were quite you would must have been quite reliant on other departments around you and other bodies to get done what you needed to do. How did you as a leader operate in that environment when you needed lots of other people to help you get done what you needed to do? Well, particularly in the Federation, because almost everything that I did, uh, especially in education, relied on state governments too. And some things relied on local governments, for example, occupational health and safety and workplace relations. But to get any reform, for example, creating the national architecture for schooling to create a body to do national curriculum 
and to do NAPLAN testing, which is, which is now a body. That required all ministers of education around the country to agree, and it took, you know, it took a couple of years to get that through. It really takes time, and I think it takes trust. So the best way you can achieve these things when you need others is to build a relationship of trust between person to person, or even between, or even in the way that you operate. So, the Commonwealth government traditionally has people who can come across as quite arrogant, quite, you know, I'm telling you, that's very old-fashioned. Uh, nowadays, you tend to, I hope, find Commonwealth public servants who say, look, this is how it is. You know, if we're going to say no, I'll, I'll tell you why. Uh, if the money's not going to flow, I'll tell you why. I'll give you enough time. You know, I'll just be open. And, and I always found that if I offered information in a trusted way, it was always repaid. Always. The trust was never broken um, by anyone I dealt with. It's a, it's a huge privilege every day. You've been a leader of these very big departments operating in very complex areas. How did you define success? What did success look like for you? Can you give us a couple of examples of times when you personally felt quite rewarded by the success of your leadership and your role? In terms of my chief executive role, it was usually when we created new benchmarks in staff engagement, which we did constantly. So it's almost always the case that when we would do staff survey, our engagement scores actually set new benchmarks against the pool of companies and organisations that were benchmarked. Very cool. That means that my approach to leadership in terms of caring for people in a genuine way, accepting what people bring to the workplace from home life, supporting them when something goes wrong, uh, not allowing bullying and bad behaviour in the workplace. All of that worked. It actually worked. So twice the department that I led was uh, given the national award from the Australian Human Resource Institute for large organisation excellence in people management. And that, I was terribly chuffed about that. So that's a sign of success. Um, in terms of success upwards towards government, uh, well, basically, you know, offering top-rate advice that they appreciated and, you know, one always knew if they appreciated it or not, <laughs> uh, and implementing their policies in a timely, efficient, you know, not red tape drenched way. Um, and I was always pleased that in my department, you know, we responded very, very positively to the government of the day, the minister of the day, um, and understood our role as public servants working to the government of the day. Leaders in the social sector, like you were in government, are increasing, facing increasingly complex and chaotic systems, lots of change, very complex and challenging social issues that are always interdependent. And many have just no clear solution and very interdependent. So, and at the same time, operating in more and more resource constrained environments. Having worked as you have in government, what are some of the things that have struck you about moving from government into the social sector and the work that you're seeing across the sector? What I've always loved about the social sector is it can be so much more flexible, agile, fast-moving, uh, and it can foster innovation, and it can experiment. 
much easier than government. So I, I, I think governments are really, really good at analysing big data, at analysing long-term trend data, and at offering solutions which tend to be one-size-fits-all because you're dealing with the whole nation. Now, that's quite, not quite fair, but, you know, it's hard when you're dealing with a massive system to innovate quickly. Whereas in the social sector, we can actually do that. We can experiment. And if, thing, if something doesn't work, usually our funders will accept that, whereas the general public and the amazing scrutiny governments under may not accept that. I see the social sector as, as this brilliant complement to government. They both do different things incredibly well. In terms of being a leader in the social sector, I agree with you. I think the pressures are immense. Uh, the funding pressures are immense. They are in government too. I had to take 30% of people and money out of my organisation but take on more work over a couple of years. And it is hard. It's really hard. So same thing. Reflect on your own leadership. Decide what you stand for. And then I'd strongly advocate that everybody look at what Social Ventures Australia is doing by way of looking at system effects rather than just taking the, a kind of incredibly narrow slice of an issue. That's not going to have knock-on effects if you just deal with that in our world. It's too complex. SVA now is very, in a very sophisticated way taking a system perspective and, and making interventions that uh, have an impact across the whole system. The other thing I love about SVA is we take a really business-like approach to investment and return uh, on social impact. And I would strongly advocate all social sector organisations to become as business-like uh, which means, you know, strong governance, strong accounting, strong financials, um, strong players on boards who come out of financial sector. That makes a huge difference. I'm interested in the point that you touched on about the social sector and innovation and observations that you might have about how the social sector can feed more of that innovation into government and work with government in that space. I think there's a big potential for that. I think more of that could happen. I think the government could be more welcoming of it and I think the social sector could be more kind of pushing of it. I certainly am gratified to see that when the government comes out with something which does fund innovation, whether it's the current national innovation uh, and science agenda or the innovation funds that have happened in employment over the years or the recent one in social services, those are funds which... So the government's not trying to do the innovation itself, it's funding social sector to do it. Well, all those things are important to participate in. But they're also important to try to shape. And I do think the social sector could be more... could be sitting down with government more frequently, forming relationships into government and supporting government to spend taxpayers' money most effectively, including by experimenting. Um, including by being utterly clear about what works uh, and including innovative financial vehicles. Having moved from those public service roles and all that complexity and the, and the learnings you bring from government, what do you see that you bring to the social sector? What sorts of things are you finding are of great benefit to the sector organisations you're working with? <laughs> I don't quite know what to say. Well, obviously, information 
and insights about how government works is something I do talk about quite a bit because it's, it's an arcane and mysterious thing. Um, and, you know, you have to have been there to really explain how decisions are made. So I find that's helpful. I, I hope that I offer some strategic guidance or at least support um, and and I just hope that because I've worked I guess my whole life in public sector and otherwise on disadvantage and addressing disadvantaged people's needs I hope I can bring the right values and some knowledge of how to join the dots in, in the areas that we focus on. I would just have to endorse your answer. Having come from the government background, are there advice and insights that you'd offer to leaders seeking to drive change in this complex world, particularly across the social sector? I would say be really rigorous and analytical about focusing on the things that make a difference and understanding that every dollar is precious and must leverage more value than it stands for. That means knowing the evidence of what works in whatever sector you're working in, and then rigorously measuring impact of your own interventions in whatever social impact area you're working in. In a way that I was thinking about this and thinking, is it is it a sense of having rigorous compassion? You know, you really care about what you do, but in quite a business-like way. And lastly, I'd say as leaders, just reflect on the skills you might need to bring in, say, in financials, in business approach in understanding investment and impact, social return on investment. Um, and for your own leadership, mentors can be very lonely, can't it? Mentors, champions, support groups, and having a sense of how you might need to scale up and down, and therefore how you manage change. Never forget your own professional development incredibly important because these jobs are quite lonely. Thank you, Lisa. It's been an absolute delight to have you with us today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Related podcasts and articles can be found on the SVA quarterly site, www.socialventures.com.au forward slash SVA hyphen quarterly forward slash.